Hello and welcome to the Movie Bunga podcast. It's me, Chris. And me, Matt. And today we've got James Hickey. Welcome to the podcast, James. Thank you so much, guys. A big deal to be here. Thank you. So what is um, going on in the Hickey household? I mean, how's lockdown going for you? <laughs> uh, lockdown is uh, very busy. Uh, I work for a charity in the day and I'm a music journalist kind of by night, although there's no gigs to go to, obviously. Uh, but there's lots to do, so that's, that sense of purpose is really useful, and obviously it allows me to watch loads of films as well. Ah, revisit all those classics. And not so classics. <laughs> How did you get into music journalism? Uh, I always wanted to do it, and I kind of was lucky enough to work, work for a company that there were music titles within that, and I kind of went and knocked on the door and... Uh, annoyed them until they gave me some work and you know 13 years later I'm still doing it. We've got quite a meaty challenge ahead of us uh, this evening James because you chose a, a behemoth of a movie for us to, to uh, discuss tonight. Yeah I, I picked uh, Kingdom of Heaven which is uh, came out in 2005 Ridley Scott film you know all the hallmarks of Ridley Scott's pick and uh, including some fairly mixed reviews when it was released. Be without fear in the face of your enemies. Safeguard the helpless, even if it leads to your death. That is your oath. Rise a knight! Rise a knight! What becomes of us? The world will decide. The world always decides. Oh God, it, it had some, well, it, it got critically panned, let's face it. And we weren't expecting it based on the fact that it's come from the director of Gladiator and it was very much in a Gladiator vein, isn't it? It's kind of really ticking all those boxes. Let me just do the plot synopsis quickly because, you know, that's, that's the podcast formula. Belaine of, now I'm going to get all these names right. We've already mentioned we've got some cracking names here, uh, James. We're going to have great fun. Belaine of Ibelin travels to Jerusalem during the Crusades of the 12th century. Is that rhyme? <laughs> <laughs> and there he finds himself as the defender of the city and its people. Wow. 
<laughs> and I realized, I mean, we did mention before um, on the pre-record recording of the podcast of, um, that there is, there's two films. And I realized the film I watched is the panned version. Yeah, I must have done too. The Sky version is the two hour, 20 minute version, which is the one I watched. Whereas the, the, the better version, the one that apparently makes a lot more sense is like three hours and a bit long. That's right. It's about, it's about three hours, 10. And, you know, there's, I would go as far as to say, bold claim early on, but I'd go as far as to say the director's cut is not only sort of a transformative version has been much better than the theatrical cut, but I actually think it's better than Gladiator. Oof. Whoa! <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> it is a bold claim. But this is the problem with these movies, is because we, we did King Arthur uh, a while ago, and we watched the the unedited or the, the non-director's cut, um, which is has all sorts of problems. But the director's cut is infinitely better, apparently. And I've not seen it, but yeah, you know, in the bunker, we can't put ourselves through director's cuts. We have to go through, <laughs> we have to go through hell before we can get the reward of the de- director's cut. But there's still enough in this for us to sort of, you know, pick the bones of. I think, isn't it? What, I'm, what... Start, I'm starting to think our, our guests pretend there's director's cuts. <laughs> so they can come on and go, oh, no, no, the version you saw was, was the horrible version, and it's quite rightly so. But with the, with, the extra, with the extra 17 minutes, it all really ties together wonderfully. <laughs> I, th- I think it's worth maybe talking about why there, is, there are two versions, because it's quite an interesting history, if you, you feel indulged as to why it, it's kind of happened. Obviously... Yeah, yeah. Ridley Scott in 2000 made Gladiator, massively lauded film, lots of awards. The next film he made afterwards was Black Hawk Down in 2001, which was, you know, met with a lot of controversy, largely because of this sort of very jingoistic film and a sort of dehumanising portrayal of Savalis in in the film. Mm. So I think, I mean, Ridley Scott sort of has gone on record as saying that he wanted to make a film that was, you know, a bit more of a nuanced film because... From reports, uh, the shooting script for Black Hole Down was actually a much more nuanced film. It was much more about the nature of conflicts and all these kinds of things um, before going through the mill and ending up as the kind of very loud, very aggressive film that it ended up as. So I think um, basically Ridley Scott wanted to make a, a sort of more nuanced film, but obviously studios would want, given that he's returning to the sort of sword and sandals epic, something akin to Gladiator. So the film kind of was streamlined in order to make it more palatable length and in doing so made it quite a dull film and sort of um, sort of sanded off some of the more interesting elements of it. Yeah, it's pretty spot on because I think the beginning of the, of the movie for me was kind of pricked my attention when you start to see the cast unfolding and you go, oh, hello. And then you go, oh, oh, hello, you're in it too. And you start <laughs> to think, oh, this is actually going to be pretty good. But then the issue I have, and it didn't really hold my attention, to be honest, because a lot of the kind of like, interesting characters and the interesting actors that were on screen got um, dispatched quite early on. And it, and it kind of, if after that, it felt like a very laboured film. And I guess, yeah, because of that, that edit I was watching, everything felt a little bit disjointed. But what about you, Matt? What was your take on it? Because I know you watched it pretty yeah, fresh as well. I mean, one of my notes... It- it is um one of my notes was about how some of the interesting people did get killed really quickly because obviously uh, Liam Neeson turns up declares himself as Orlando Bloom's dad Orlando <laughs> quickly op- 
offs a priest, jumps on his horse, and goes after him. But like um, Liam's kind of like uh, little posse are really interesting. There's like yeah. a Viking one. There's like a Saracen one. There's a there's a like a priesty guy. And it's like, oh yeah, this is like a dirty dozen kind of thing. And then, and then two minutes later, they're all fucking dead. And <laughs> Liam Neeson's on his way out as well. It's like, oh, oh fuck, okay. So yeah. all those, and then and then like out of that wonderful ensemble piece, you're left with Orlando Bloom. <laughs> it's like the wrong people died here. <laughs> I think that's one of the main the main reasons that the theatrical cut was such a problem is because it thrust. Orlando Bloom more into the forefront of it. Yeah. When in fact he was kind of more, I mean, although he's the lead, there was kind of an ensemble of some very strong acting talent Jeremy Irons, David Thewlis, Brendan Gleeson, Ed Norton, uh, Liam Neeson, obviously. And it's interesting you picked up on sort of kind of some of the, the sort of early bit with the priests. The, I mean, that's an example whereby the theatrical cut kind of robbed some of the meaning of the film. The priest is actually in the director's cut revealed to be his, not only his half brother, but to have, because his wife had taken her own life and actually ordered her to be beheaded when she was buried and kind of goads him very much. But all of this was lost in the theatrical cut. So you just think that Orlando Bloom is just this really kind of hot-headed homicide. Ah, yeah. He just is... kills a priest and yeah. throws him in a fire. This is what I said to Matthew last night. I said, why did, why did he kill him? It was just such a weird thing because he just saw he was wearing his wife's necklace. Yes, he beheaded and he was being a bit of a, a jerk, or well, obviously a, a massive jerk, but then just to sort of push him in the molten lava pit thing where he was doing all his making of the metal stuff, <laughs> which is just an extreme reaction. Yeah, it just didn't really make any sense and I felt a little bit cheated. We have to talk about Orlando Bloom because... Why is he the lead in this movie? Is it because of Lord of the Rings and that's it? Because it can't be anything else. I think Troy as well, wasn't he, before this? Yeah, I think he was, I mean, at that point, he was a very bankable star. And I think, however, sometimes with these films, however big and reputable a director is, they need to have a a star name for this. I have it on pretty good authority um, that... Uh, Paul Bettany, who's a vastly superior actor and had a bit of a renaissance having done kind of the Avengers films uh, more recently, was kind of in the frame for that role. And I think would have been probably far less kind of movie star presence, but an infinitely better actor. So I think, yeah, yeah. the actual kind of puts the film very firmly on Orlando Bloom's shoulders. And as, you know, as pretty as they are, they're not <laughs> particularly strong for holding up a film like this. Uh, whereas you know, especially next to some of the heavyweights that he has kind of shares the cast with. Yeah, there's some big, big hitters on heavy hitters. He he just looks like a stroppy and behaves like a stroppy teenager, I think, for the whole thing. He's so yeah, nonchalant. One, one of my notes was um, I wouldn't follow Orlando Bloom to the shops, let alone to Because <laughs> 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 oh, he's up there trying to give a really stirring speech and I'd be like, oh no, I'm all right, mate. I'm, <laughs> I'm fine. Just want to go back to that little um, posse that you were talking about earlier on, Matthew, with the yeah Liam Neeson and uh, Kevin McKidd and 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 that and some of the the great banter, for want of a better word, <laughs> between those guys is brilliant because what is he? One of them hurts, gets um, shot with an arrow, and Liam Neeson's famous line is, "Yeah, I once fought for two days with an arrow in my testicle," and just thought <laughs> that's the kind of line I want in a movie. 
Uh, it was. I want to see that pre. I want to see that prequel. <laughs> I want to see the prequel where Liam Neeson is fighting for a day and a half, however many days he says he fights with an arrow through his testicle. That's the testicle. <laughs> <laughs> I also like the um, the directions he give. Like when it turns out, it, it looks like Orlando's not going to go with them to begin with. So like they're in the middle of France somewhere, and he said, "Well, you know, if you change your mind and you want to come to Jerusalem, you just head that way <laughs> till they speak Italian, and then carry on for a bit yeah. till they till they speak something else." And then, and then that's it. Then you'll be, you're basically there, right? So I've, t I've put into Google Maps um, <laughs> the, uh, how long yeah. it would actually take to walk from um, Paris. I put it's Paris. It could be anywhere in France. But I thought, let's go Paris. Paris. It's, it's 38 days and you could go for like <laughs> eight countries. It's like, that's, yeah, no. No. That's not good, that's uh, not good direction. So, and how much of Start did they have as well? They had a pretty much a big head start on him as well. And you know, yes. sat in that show, yeah. I'm not sure the directions would have been. I mean, he, I mean, he, he wouldn't think he was a good omen as well if he turned up that long afterwards and then you basically get massacred about just as soon as he arrives. This other can basically kill them all off. But then uh, Jamie Lannister turns up with another gang who wants to yeah. you know, arrest him for murder. Um, and that was a nice little turn. It was a couple of Games of Thrones people in this as well. It was somebody else, but I can't remember who it was. Um, but yeah, uh, cast is fantastic, and it just gets better and better and better as these big hitters come on stage. And then, well, it hit, hit the screen, sorry. And then Edward Norton. I was looking at the cast afterwards, and I don't even remember seeing him in it. What, what, and where, when, where, and when was he in it? He's the king. He's King Baldwin, who obviously um, had leprosy, and was, he's the know, one. Well, figure. fucking great. He's the one in the mask. <laughs> no wonder I didn't. <laughs> was he, was he, he was wearing the mask. And actually, you know, that's another kind of, I, I, I'm crowbarring in a lot of the kind of allusions to the uh, to the director's cut, but that's actually another, I think the, the cast member who gets the toughest, the roughest ride in all this is probably Eva Green. Um, yeah, yeah, right. Because her character, Sibylla, obviously, in the director's cut, has a son who, when Baldwin, played by Edward Norton, dies, um, is set to inherit the throne. But it quickly becomes apparent that he has leprosy as well and Sibylla's <laughs> character um she she basically euthanizes him by pouring poison in his ear which <laughs> changes the whole dynamic of the film and her motivations and why in the latter part of the film she kind of is really sidelined and kind of oh right so that's why she goes that's why she goes mad that's why she in oh, the that made no sense yeah. made none whatsoever Oh, I feel sorry for laughing about that. That was such a horrible thing to laugh at. But just when you said poison in the air, that just... I'm sorry about that. That's so insensitive. But, but <laughs> that's, that's all right. Uh, too soon? <laughs> yeah. It's just, of all the places to put it, <laughs> put, pop, pop it on some ice cream. Well, I, um, the thing is, right, I mean, I, I, watched, the, I watched this last night, and it's, this is becoming a bit of a podcast tradition for me, because this is a, yet another film I have never seen. And, really? And what, yes, this is another movie that I've never seen, and I'm glad, because <laughs> in, a, in a way, I always find something nice to say about things, and I, I, I will admit, I have written down some good stuff about it, so I'm not going to panic completely, but I found it so boring. But I, I would not have watched this film if unless I would have had to. And even if you told me that the, 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 
the director's cut was infinitely better, I would have still struggled with the themes and the pacing of it because I don't know if I've got the patience for this sort of thing anymore. I don't know whether it's just because I'm getting old and senile or that, that this podcast is ruining my ability to watch decent movies. Yeah, <laughs> Even I think it, it's probably the latter of that. Yeah, yeah. And something's happened. Something's changed. But um, when, when those uh, sort of interesting characters are dispatched, you get a couple of other decent ones turning up when the king and uh, you know, Jeremy Irons and Alexander Siddig, who was fantastic. He's such a calm presence on, on, on screen. He's brilliant. And then, but then it just, there's too much going on, or not enough. I can't quite decide. I, I'm I just it... um, absolutely gutted about, because so in my notes, it was just like, I, I, I couldn't for the life of me work out why Eva Green had gone mad. Now... Now I feel like it's worse, right? So I wasted like two hours, 20 minutes of my life when I watching a film which made no sense, where for a mere 40 minutes more, I could have actually enjoyed something, potentially. Well, James, she's underserved, because, A, because she's a woman and, uh, and she's in a film. So there's two things she's got you know, going for her that are going against her already. And this is a swinging sausage fest if ever there was one, isn't it? I mean, in terms of yeah, actors of a certain age, there is, I mean, it's a, it's a bit of a best of. I, you know, particularly, I think, some nice kind of hammy performances from uh, Jeremy Irons, who's always got great presence, and Brendan Gleeson in particular. Um, but I think, uh, I think it's, he's from New Zealand, uh, the actor Ma- Martin Sokas has the most, possibly the, the most hammy, almost pantomime performance yeah. in the film uh, as Guy de Lusignan. And uh, I pronounced that right. Wow. Wow. That's and, good. Uh, well done. He, yeah. <laughs> he, um, he's really sort of in a different film. He's almost like these like in the life in a Monty Python film. He almost seems. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the Holy Grail. Film. He's really sort of pouting. Seems to have a lot, quite a lot of eyeliner on, and just sort of <laughs> the most hateful. I mean, I, I understand a character <laughs> has to be kind of you have to hate a character, but there's this sort of telegraphing of him as being a bit of a wrong and right from the word go and his performance is almost distracting whereas you've got kind of people chewing the scenery like Brendan Gleeson who do it with equal relish but you know with a bit, a bit more subtlety. He's bonkers isn't it as well the little dancing he does and it's just his whole demeanour and the way he's he's dispatched as well is quite unexpected and I felt I felt good that he died I mean because he was an, he was an asshole but it was very unexpected and quite a shock. But I think, is it because of his hair? And it, was everyone jealous that he was, he was able to get pink highlights? I mean, what, or st- <laughs> orange highlights in his hair? Where's that? What's that all about? I mean, I think, I'm assuming, is it supposed to be that it's red, red and with blood? I don't know, but it is a very interesting, I think it's called a purple rinse, I think. Some people <laughs> um, I think it, there was a cat, a, a, an older lady in the Coronation Street back in the day who had a similar <laughs> hairdo. Um, but it's, um, yeah, I mean, he, he's dispatched by, I would say, the uh, Salahuddin, who's played by Syrian actor uh, Gasson Masood, who I think is actually the best thing in the film, really. Um, I think he is kind of uh, his performance and his the depiction of Salahuddin is sort of um, indicative of Ridley Scott's approach to a more nuanced approach to two sides of an argument that he got completely wrong in Black Hawk Down. I think he's incredible presence in the film, incredible dignity, and you see there's this really some quite uh, one particular scene in particular where Baldwin and him sort of meet him at the front of the battlefield and they agree not to fight. That's a really and you see that they're sort of compassionate men and have a great deep respect for one another. And I think it's, 
it's really interesting and it's quite it's kind of it's sort of these moments of subtlety which yeah. are sort of offset by some really screamingly unsubtle things like Brendan Gleeson um, getting his throat slit for drinking a cup of ice. The problem with it is, in my in my opinion, is that Orlando Bloom just can't he just cannot pull that that nuanced performance off, and that's what why you it's, get it's lost. A, a, it needs a big performance, right? Because I mean, I think. The benefits of this film is that it it is a nice and balanced. The only kind of real villains, um, like James says, is the, is the, the real pantomime, uh, the the gee character. Um, oh, I need to ask: in the director's cut, do you actually see his end? Because the in the one I watched, all you do is you see him like driving around backwards on a donkey. Uh, there is a in the director's cut is again sort of it's not better because it's, you're not sort of given the the glee of seeing him dispatched. They have a very unnecessary short um, sword fight um, Bailey and, and Guy and basically they he comes off Guy comes off in a very undignified manner and is sort of sent away yeah. um, <laughs> assuming a man you know who's got no honour like that that is kind of the ultimate disgrace, sort of fate worse than death maybe yeah, yeah. So aside from those villains, though, everyone else in there is, is always very reasonable and um, apparently reasonably historically accurate. Um, Balan's character um, was in the, in, in the, oh, I can't remember what the was called now, but the ones where the Crusaders go off and they're far away from water and they get absolutely massacred. In the historical terms, he was actually part of that battle, um, was caught and was agreed to be let go as long as he didn't fight anymore. He went back to Jerusalem. They said, asked him to defend the city. Um, he then sought permission from Salam Hadin to, to actually sort of go, can I? <laughs> mm. They they agreed um, and then gave safe passage to his family so that he, he wouldn't have to worry about his family whilst defending the city. So it's it's crazy. Um, but like, yeah, some of the actual, the actual, those bits of it were actually historically accurate, which is kind of cool, right? You have to be in the right frame of mind to sit through it and to want to sort of invest <coughs> invest in that journey. And I think that's what I think maybe some people might struggle with, especially when you're presented with something that's three hours long. And you're going to get, yeah, a sweeping sort of sword and sandals epic, which is historically accurate, well acted, you know, obviously with, with, aside from the lead. You know, generally speaking, it's well acted and... and, and but it's such a big investment, I think. You've got to have, you've got to have some um, time on your hands, I think that's the problem. It's interesting, isn't it? People often, uh, often take issue with films that are too long, but would binge watch like seven or eight hours of a TV series. I mean, I don't know whether kind of the long form narrative that's sort of come back into vogue in, you know, uh, these kind of bingeable TV series gives people is engineering people to be more prepared for these longer epic films with these many strands. Um, it's an interesting one. I certainly not something necessarily people want to see at the cinema, but certainly at home, I yeah, would think yeah. that there's a bit more of an appetite for that. It's a good point because I think you know what we're seeing now with studios like Netflix um, is that they're allowing you know uh, filmmakers and directors to to make longer films. I mean, you've got to look at well, and not just Netflix, but you've got The Irishman that was you know, three hours long. You've got, well, we watched um, Eurovision last night. That was two hours long. And then, we, <laughs> and then you've two got... Two hours you'll never get back. Yeah, yeah, two hours, <laughs> Christ. And then um, Once Upon a Time in, in Hollywood, is it? Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I've got that right. Like the the yeah. Yeah, Tarantino. Yeah. And, and that's uh, 
two and a half, three hour film, isn't it? From what I gather, that's long. I think the best thing to do is just not check the runtime. Just watch the film. Yeah. Just... Yeah. But, but I, no, no, actually, I, I take that instantly back as soon as that's out of my mind because obviously, with this film, check the runtime. If it's a two hour, 20 minutes run, just bin it off and wait. <laughs> and hopefully, the director's cut will be on TV at some point and we can watch that. Although, if it's on TV, we have advert breaks in it, and that would be like five hours long. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. What's interesting about you know, the, the difference between the theatrical and director's cut is, I think. Um, the theatrical cut came in out in May, and the director's cut, I think it had a very limited, you know, probably kind of a token cinema run, probably a few screenings, and of the same year. And I think critics were just a bit baffled as to just how transformative that different version was and just why he hadn't done that version to begin with. I mean, it's clear now when you sort of, for the benefit of hindsight, you look back and see that kind of, films that people wanted this to be or to market it as um, but it, it, it is strange that a decision like that would, would kind of two versions in the same year I mean I know Ridley Scott is very keen was very keen on the DVD I'm talking about DVDs in the present tense on the DVD format and obviously having um, yeah. done the Blade Runner director's cut which was incredibly popular sort of did director's cut versions of several films with mixed results but this one is the one that is genuinely it does make this a completely different film. Yeah. It's interesting as well, isn't it? because like, you know, we're not talking about a first time director that got browbeaten by a production, you know, the, by their, their studio. This is Ridley fucking Scott. And even he had to cow down to the, the studio. And it's like, yeah. what, what, what chance? I mean, like, we're reviewing all these films and, you know, their first, second time directors. And it's like, how close to their original vision do these films actually turn out to be if someone like ridley scott get, can't get especially like you know after gladiator which was a long film you know how could he not have got this out in the format that he wanted it to be because clearly he wasn't happy with it i think i mean on paper it had all the hallmarks of being you know a sort of a return to all the elements that made gladiator such a successful film um, perhaps minus a more charismatic lead, um, <laughs> yeah. but it, it. But it. So I, I can only assume that there was some, some studio pressure to take away, the more sort of mediative elements in it, and um, yeah, and definitely make it to to refine to refine it and just to make it more more battles. And it's very the the extra bits are generally quite talky. And when they're not quite talky scenes, they sort of deepen your understanding of the dynamics and the kind of um, religious obsession, you know, divinity and divine purpose versus personal, you know, purpose and you know, looking for uh, for retribution and all the all these kind of complicated elements. When it's not doing those things, it's also propelling the plot in really fundamental ways that not having that there makes. As you say, some bits make absolutely no sense. Yeah, yeah. Let's look at Twitter. Very often we do sort of tweet uh, about what films we're going to put on. And we've got a couple of comments with regards to this. And they both exactly say the same thing in terms of the director's cut. Darren Cooper says, director's cut is stunning, adds so much more to the story. And Steve George says, DC, or director's cut, I'm guessing, is the only version of that film. I'm guessing is the only version of that film that you should watch. But it's too late now because we haven't watched that one. <laughs> or, or, or it's the only version of the film he will acknowledge as yeah. existing. Yeah, yeah. No. I think. I mean, right, right. I think it's it, there are 
positives to the original version. I mean, let's be honest, when, I mean, I have to, I should preface this by saying that I even liked, or quite liked, uh, Exodus the, the, with Christian Bale. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Whenever he does these films, they look staggering. And you can yeah. watch a lot of films from that period where CGI um, sort of augmented and supplemented a lot of films and now looks a little bit ropey. I'm sure there's you know, some bits in Gladiator where some of those crowd scenes and the kind of arenas don't look quite as good as they did, you know, 15 or, you know, 20 years on. But yeah. I think visually it really stands up as being fairly extraordinary. I think it's got a pretty beautiful score. The performances are still good, but, you know, as a film that you are investing that much time in, it, even at the theatrical cut, if you're going to invest that much time and it's kind of confounds you by very, you know, quite often not making sense and kind of jumping around and you're going, why has this happened? It would, it would really annoy people. And similarly, having to spend so much time with a main character that you don't really particularly buy into as being this dynamic leader, that's going to be ideal either. I just wanted to bring up a couple of things on my notes before we sort of move on to the Matt's rant segment of the podcast. And there was two things, really. One is that I agree with you, James, what you were saying earlier on is about the, the, st- the score is lovely and it's got everything you want from a, a sweeping a soundtrack of this kind of movie and it really lifts the, the movie along beautifully. And I think that's something to celebrate. And the other thing as well is the amount of times characters refer to God's will um, was starting to get on my nerves because... <laughs> If, if everything is down to God's will, then really, why have we not carried that through into present day? Because the amount of times I get blamed for doing stuff, whereas I could just have the excuse, well, you know, it's God's will. Like I get all the, the, the Maltesers or I, you know, I finished off the last of the bottle of wine. It's like, well, it was God's will. And why can't I get away with that anymore? I don't want to counteract a point about Maltesers with something quite serious, but I think, I think, um, <laughs> One of the things you have to also bear in mind is when this film came out and um, in the post 9-11 landscape, you know, depictions of, you know, the Muslim characters and their relationship with their religion and, you know, the sort of divine purpose. I think I th- the reason I think that they probably overlabor that point is because it is really the main kind of point of the film. We've talked about the cinematography being really beautiful. Um, yeah. I think it, make, it makes... Jerusalem look like a place that you two you know two different um, armies two different religions would battle incessantly for it successfully does that I think and I think the film is very much about you know personal purpose and sense of purpose and this kind of broad religious purpose and I think yeah perhaps it kind of overplays the point and hammers it you over the head with it a little bit but yeah. there is kind of a depth to it that makes it an interesting film especially given when it came out well, I'm definitely going to use that, you know, d- d- regardless of all the historicalness, again, you know, and you made some very valid points there, but I'm definitely bringing that saying into this century and I'm going to be using it every opportunity uh, going forward. Because I think, you know, if you do accidentally not flush the toilet after going, then it is God's will. So, right, Matthew, go on then, let's hear it. You've both, I bet you've got about a thousand notes left to talk to talk about. There, there, there was just a few. Um, so, <laughs> like on, on his boat journey over to Jerusalem, a lot happened when he was asleep, didn't it? Because, <laughs> <laughs> like, you saw him go into a bit of a storm. He went to bed. He woke up on the beach. Literally, everyone else is dead. 
you not had a night out like that before? <laughs> <laughs> well, I never found a horse. That's what it's called. Um, yeah, yeah, so <laughs> he just kind of woke up like, oh, that was a bit of a weird one. And utter devastation all around him, just bits of boat knocking around. We mentioned, obviously, how great Jerusalem looks and the vistas. And the, the use of extras, uh, by the way, we have to talk about is, is amazing. There's a billion extras in this. Um, and you can't see the cut between, like, obviously, where they duplicate the CGI ones and stuff. Because must have used hundreds of thousands of the of, um, of extras um the other thing i used an awful lot of was animal noises um <laughs> the bit where it goes into jerusalem um and it's one of those things that i'm sure it was just an ambience thing but once you kind of start focusing on the sheer myriad of animal noises you can't hear anything else it's like he's just walking around it's like <laughs> It's like fucking it's old like, McDonald's farm. Is it like one of those uh, children's playbooks where you've got the buttons on the side <laughs> and there's just some kids mashing the sound effect buttons? <laughs> yeah, it's like <laughs> we haven't even got to the bit where... And the thing is, you can't see any of these animals anywhere on scene. <laughs> you can just hear like... <laughs> fucking chickens going off. He mentions that it's the kingdom of conscious. He's, you know, he, he, you know, he wants to be conscious. Um, he's mentioning this whilst he's, um, he's smashing a married woman. <laughs> Um, he, you know, he, he picks his battles where it comes to being, uh, you know, conscientious about uh, things. It's Legolas. It's what he wants, right? Yeah. Um, and finally, the other thing that's kind of made me go, was a bit annoyed, um, is that the king, uh, his mask, he had a, a really, a really faint goatee drawn on it. <laughs> I was like, why, why would you do that? Like... <laughs> That's not in the director's card. Oh, gosh. <laughs> it's a little, yeah. it's, it's different. It's a little flavour saver. They changed it. It's little new metal beards underneath, like Fred <laughs> But I just, it just was like, it's like, a, it's the tiniest bit of like fake metal stubble. And it's you either go full metal beard or go with a, you know, a very youthful silver mask. I just, and uh, you could barely see it. And I was craning to, to, to have a look at the tiny, tiny weird goatee. Now I want to see a film called Full Metal Beard as well. well. I was going to say, you did that, or it's, it's Judas, uh, Judas Priest's comeback album, isn't it? <laughs> Full Metal Beard. <laughs> uh, thanks, Matt, for that. That was inspirational. But, I mean, look, we, I think we've been a little bit mean about this movie. I mean, I certainly feel like I've... I've I should have made it, paid a lot more attention than I did because James has come on and he's he's really fought for this and he's been so eloquent in terms of trying to you know explain the story to to me as I didn't potentially take it in as Candy Crush that I had literally had like to finish this level on Candy Crush. Oh man! <laughs> and and I had. Hang on a second. Is it two, is it two thousand and five now? Has the film just come out? <laughs> tell me, come on, tell me. I'm not. What level are you on? I can tell you. Tell him, tell me. You don't still play Candy Crush. I'm the only I, I, person. Um, still. I, did, I didn't. I'd never started playing Candy Crush, no. unfortunately. So I don't think I can still. Have I? Playing. Have I embarrassing myself again? Uh, I've, I've never played Candy Crush. How can you not, not play? At all. It's amazing. I mean, it just has so much to give. Now listen, I'm on level 1,081, and there's so that many. Sounds excessive. There's a lot of Candy Crush levels. Can I just say? Can I just say? You begrudge watching a two-hour, three-hour plus <laughs> film, but you play more than a thousand levels of Candy Crush. I think you need to check out your priorities. I think as I've the host of a movie podcast. You've you've lost days of your life to that. 
Yeah. Days. <laughs> yeah, but they're good. They're days well spent. <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, you should have you should have given this film at least your attention because um, I the, did. Um, I did. I did. I promise. I only did a little <laughs> bit of Candy Crush <laughs> because it, it does look stunning, you know. So, it, and I think you know, even the theatrical cut um, with a stronger lead, and, and the problem is, is, is as we mentioned before, the, the cast around him is is amazing. I mean, even yeah. Michael Sheen in the first opening five ten minutes is like he's a fantastic actor. Yeah, um, yeah, and you're just kind of like the whole way through it. You're always kind of going, oh, if it only this wasn't Orlando Bloom. And if the director's cut takes the focus away from him, then it, that's got to be good. We are reviewing two different films here. By that's the good thing to, to always put into perspective is that you know it's 2007. This is the movie was released. Is that right? Just to con- just to con- I think it's 2005. 2005. Yeah. So so essentially, we can look back at these movies and, and knowing that we know now in terms of the director's cut being available and on what filmmakers are up against all the time in terms of trying to get their, their art and their craft the way they want it. And not, you know, every film, every other film that comes out or every sort of film uh, magazine you read or every podcast you listen to, you know, you're always hearing about the stories of how difficult it is for filmmakers to do what they want. And so we know now looking back at in hindsight with films like this, that actually, yes, they deserve to be watched in the way that they were intended to be watched. And I guess it's fine to have this movie, you know, critically panned as, as quite rightly it should be in terms of some of the some of the way it's put together. But that's not down to it's not down to Ridley Scott. And it's not down to anybody that's in it and the effort and and, and everything else that's gone into it. So, you know, it's well, I just had a conspiracy theory thought. Yeah, is like what if Ridley Scott did this on purpose to double up his DVD sales. Oh, yeah, but he does this a lot, doesn't he? He does this a lot. It feels like a very laborious way of doing it. And, <laughs> cost, and, co- and costly. Um, and I definitely think now, now is definitely the time in this climate for more conspiracy theorists. <laughs> <laughs> There's just not enough around, right? It's almost like yeah. someone's taken them all away somehow. Exactly. <laughs> Well, I think we definitely have to jettison this movie out of the bunker for um, everyone. Well, but we, we didn't. We didn't see this movie. Is the problem? <laughs> I saw the theatrical cut. You watch Candy Crush. Only, only James has the right to actually say whether or not this film should be free or not because he's he's the only one here who's actually seen the how it is the director intended. So it has to go free. It has to. Yeah, James. Thank you so much for coming on and and giving this or schooling me and, and Matthew on, on this movie and I feel ashamed of myself. I feel thoroughly ashamed. <laughs> I absolve you of your shame it's, and it's been a pleasure coming on. Thank you so much. Well, it was God's will. I mean, that's a candy crush. It always <laughs> is. Um, James, where can we find you online and, and uh, your, your Twitter handles and things? Uh, my Twitter handle is Hickey Mouse, one word. Uh, there's a ridiculous story about why that is the case. Um, but we haven't got time to share it now. And um, yeah, I've, I've got various... Um, reviews and articles online largely done for Kerrang! magazine. Excellent. Thanks again. And if you enjoyed the podcast and you're new to the podcast, make sure you, uh, you listen and you download and subscribe and you leave us a rating if you want to or even a review because we could desperately need some new reviews because it helps us uh, climb that ladder in terms of getting our podcast into the ears of the people out there. And go to our website, Matthew, which is uh, moviebunkerpodcast.com did I say that actually properly bon- bonkar so yeah until next time in the bunker uh, thanks again James cheers bye bye bye